KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host this evening, Julie Murphy, and today we are delighted to welcome Tracy Brimhall to our show. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. Uh, it's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. We are um, delighted to have you join us, and we are pre-recording this show, so please forgive any um, interruptions. Uh, through the Zoom recording. Tracy Brimhall is the author of four poetry collections, Come the Slumberless, From the Land of Nod, from Copper Canyon Press, Swadaje, also from Copper Canyon, Our Lady of the Runes, published by W.W. W. Norton, which was the winner of the Barnard Women Poets Prize, and Rookery, published by Southern Illinois University Press and winner of the Crab Orchard Series in Poetry, First Book Award. Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, The Believer, The New Republic, Orion, and Best American Poetry. She's received fellowships from the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing and the National Endowments for the Arts. She is the Director of Creative Writing at Kansas State University and lives in Manhattan, Kansas. Oh, it's just a pleasure to have you here, Tracy. Uh, listeners, I want you to know that I had the pleasure of doing a month-long class with Tracy Brimhall uh, in August through the 24th Street program, and it was just an amazing month of learning and poetry. So uh, I'm delighted to have you on the air tonight, Tracy. Thanks, Julie, and it was great to have you in class. <laughs> if you ever get the chance, listeners, I encourage you to sign up. Tracy, maybe we could just jump into a poem so our listeners can hear your voice and then when we start talking about your poetry, they'll have had a little taste of it if they're not familiar with you yet. Sure. The first poem I'm going to read is called Love Poem Without a Drop of Hyperbole. And initially this poem had an epigraph that I was told to cut, but it was something that made it, it feel possible to write a love poem. And it was this quote by Oscar Wilde that said, without exaggeration, there can be no love. And I like the idea that we have to exaggerate our beloveds, whoever we love is dear to us, and in that over-exaggerated way, and that's part of the bliss of that feeling. Um, and so the, the permission to just exaggerate and revel in that, um, while of course knowing deep down that people are not, you know, they don't complete you, they can't fill in the missing puzzle piece of your heart. Um, but that's just how it feels, right? right. Um, but that's the emotional truth, even if you know um, that that can't possibly be true. Um, so with that permission to exaggerate, I wrote this poem called Love Poem Without a Drop of Hyperbole. I love you like ladybugs love windowsills. Love you like sperm whales love squid. There's no depth I wouldn't follow you through. I love you like the pawns in chess love aristocratic horses. I'll throw myself in front of a bishop or a queen for you, even a sentient castle. My love is crazy like that. I like that sweet little hothouse mouth you have. I like to kiss you with tongue, with gusto, with socks still on. I love you like a vulture loves the careless deer at the roadside. I want to get all up in you. 
I love you like Isis loved Osiris, but her devotion came up a few inches short. I'll train my breath and learn to read sonar until I retrieve every lost blood vessel of you. I swear this love is ungodly, not an ounce of suffering in it. Like salmon with its upstream itch, I'll dodge grizzlies for you. Like hawks to skyscraper rooftops, I'll keep coming back, maddened, a little hopeless, embarrassingly in love. And that's why I'm on the couch, kissing pictures on my phone instead of calling you in from the kitchen, where you were undoubtedly making dinner too spicy. But when you hold the spoon to my lips and ask if it's ready, I'll say it is, always, but never, there is never enough. Thank you. That was Tracy Brimhall reading her poem, Love Without a Drop of Hyperbole. What a fantastic, outrageous poem, Tracy. Thanks. And a beautiful reading of it. Um, there are so many unexpected metaphors in turns uh, in this poem. And I love how you have kind of a pile of different things and then every once in a while you extend the metaphor for a few more lines like i love you like the pawns in chess love aristocratic horses i'll throw myself in front of a bishop or a queen for you even a sentient castle my love is crazy like that and i love how some of the metaphors are followed with these declarative statements and was that, what, did that naturally just come out or was that something you had in mind when you were working on the poem? Yeah, I'm somebody where, um, who likes to come out from behind the curtains a little bit sometimes and make sure everybody knows what I'm saying. Um, because I think we get taught that poems are little puzzle boxes and you have to guess what it means or you get it wrong on the test, you know, for your AP English test in high school or whatever. And I, I don't mean to be mysterious or to play the game of like, if you don't know what's in my head, then how dare you? Um, I'm definitely a person who, um, in life and in poems, I want to be really direct. I want to make sure I've said something and been really clear. Um, I think in, in my pedagogy, when I'm teaching, I try and be clear. In my parenting, I try to be clear. In romantic relationships, I never play the game of, oh, well, you should just know what's bugging me. I'm just like, hey, you know, here's what's up. Here's why I'm in a bad mood. So just putting that out there, that's, that's real, that's me. Um, and I'm somebody who, like, I do think that Poems are the art of burlesque. I think that there is a, the art of the slow reveal, but there's always that dif distinction and difference between privacy and personal. Like I think this poem is personal, but I don't reveal things that are actually very private, even though I come out behind the curtain tassel swinging to be like, and I'm out, and here's the showstopper, right. uh, or I hide behind a fan again with some big leg kicks or something, that I mean to reveal something and be personal and be intimate, but I also keep my private things private, even in a love poem um, that might come out and make statements um, and be bold like that. Um, I don't want readers to end up feeling stupid or foolish or like they can't understand me because I think sometimes that can be, I can be as clear as I want to be. We know this in conversations, yeah. right? You think you've been so clear <laughs> in your head and then you said it out loud in exactly the right order that you meant to and somebody still gets it wrong or not, right. they get it wrong. What they heard and what you said feels different. And I think I'm always trying to be as clear as possible while also being complex and intimate at the same time in a poem. Yeah, and I think this poem really succeeds in that because it, it feels very intimate. 
as the poem goes along. And also the, the metaphors in the poem become more intense and a little bit more wild as the poem goes along. And it seems like there's little hints um, dropped through the poem, like, I love you like a vulture loves the careless deer at the roadside. Now we have death in the poem. I train my breath and learn to read sonar until I retrieved every lost blood vessel of you. And now there's more loss in the poem. And then those last lines, but when you hold the spoon to my lips and ask if it's ready, I'll say it is always, but never, there is never enough. And that seems like a big turn at the end there where there's another reveal and perhaps an even greater loss. Yeah, I think um, deep down the secret is the poem is an elegy. I, I wrote it. It's the happiest poem I think of. Well, until the point that I wrote it, it was the happiest point, poem I'd ever written. And it was at the end of the hardest summer of my life um, where I was crawling to the shower some days because I couldn't stand, um, where I, I made myself do a gratitude challenge I had to do. 10 gratitudes a day for a hundred days to get to a thousand, to keep myself like in love with being in the world. Um, and it was like after the end of a big love story for myself. And so even though it was over somehow, once the, the biggest hurdle of the grief had been passed, I was still able to write a love poem as if the love was still active and alive. Mm -hmm. But I also think it was the fact that it was passed to write something that vulnerable to somebody I was currently in love with would also be quite difficult. And that's a different yeah. kind of um, exposure and bravery. Um, but it secretly is a love poem about somebody I wasn't in love with anymore. Um, but somehow the distance of it being over allowed me to feel safe enough to write about it. Um, so sometimes I think writing about the past on the present tense um, lets, you, lets you get close enough to say something that you maybe couldn't have said in the moment or otherwise feels too hard. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also something that the, that hint of death and loss that's inherent in the poem makes the love more striking and more believable in a sense. It makes it that brings in that ineffable quality. Yeah. Another Oscar Wilde quote that I love is, um, he said, sentimentality is wanting the luxury of the emotion without paying the price. And I always tell my students, you know, like children are, you know, a precious miracle, but they're also really a bloody miracle. And they yeah. may throw up in your mouth, you know, after yeah. nursing, you know? <laughs> but like, that's the deal, right? Or, or love stories, like right? a beloved poem, right? Every love story ends either with you breaking up or with you watching the other person suffer and die. Yeah. Uh, or they're watching you suffer and die. And in between, there's a lot of joint taxes and fights about laundry. And yeah. that's not romantic. <laughs> but, you know, just, you know, that's just the reality, the day-to-day, -day, the real stuff, you know? Really? And so having those other losses built in or that tonal tension between um, love and death or right? The kind of completion of a vulture and the deer at the roadside does require one's death to really be that enmeshed and that close. Um, wouldn't be, isn't frankly healthy. Um, <laughs> people are living. Um, so, I mean, it, it does acknowledge in its bomb bombasticness and it's over the topness that that's like the truth of a feeling. And yet like really for me, it's an elegy it's over or in order to have that life 
you know, in real time would have to be full of boundaries and respect and all of those things because you can't be that um, into a person and still keep yourself. Um, and, and that's really an important part for a successful, healthy life. Um, but for the poem, the poem can do whatever it wants. It's a moment, it's a feeling, um, and there's so much liberation in that. Totally, and I think the title that you chose for it, Love Poem Without a Drop of Hyperbole, it gives a nod towards itself. Like the speaker of this poem knows what she's doing and she lets us know she knows what she's doing. So as a reader, I can join in you know, I can join in that uh, hugeness of the positive emotion that's in the poem. Well, and I think, I mean, it has the, the losses, but I, I still like, am so it was the first time I put a line in a poem. I think I'm a fairly funny person in real life, um, but it was the first time I put a line in a poem that I was like, ha ha, I hope I get a laugh at that when I read that out loud. Um, and that also felt brave, right? I, um, I feel like a grief expert sometimes. It's, I just zip line grief in poems and I feel like it's the only emotion I allowed myself in a poem for a long time. So I think also what feels brave in life or brave in a poem also can surprise people. I think lots of people wouldn't think that's a brave thing, um, but to try something you've never tried in an art that you love, yeah. um, let yourself say something you wouldn't normally say in that kind of context. Um, it, it, I don't know that it's my bravest poem I've ever written or something, but also that I think love poems are one of the poems I've spent a long time avoiding, though I teach them all the time and I'm really interested in them and I like to read them. Um, and I think it's because of vulnerability. Um, nothing, nothing bears you quite like that. I could talk about darker things or tragedies or traumas uh, with much more ease than talking about love. Um, and so that's something that it's taken me a long time to come around to writing. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're here with Tracy Brimhall reading poems from her most recent book, Come the Slumberless to the Land of Nod. Tracy, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about your series of poems that's sprinkled through the collection, Dear Thanatos and Dear Eros. Sure. Um, for a long time when writing poems um, for various books, since this is my fourth collection, um, I would have uh, what I called one night stand poems. Um, and whenever I couldn't uh, sort of feel the energy to create something, somehow if I just wrote Dear Thanatos and started to write to this sort of abstract idea. So in myth, Thanatos is the god of death. And Freud said, well, this is like the destructive urge. At first, he only recognized this like will to life and the survival of the species kind of instinct in people. But then he recognized like, oh, people have like this thing in them that makes them choose bad things. Like people smoking, even though we know it gives you lung cancer. You know, we all do activities or engage in things or make choices that we know are probably against our best interests. And yet this is something we still are choosing to do. Um, and so this abstract idea of this urge, this dark urge, um, in myself is something that um, that I just started writing to. And anytime I wrote to my darkness, my darkness always had something to say. Never made any sense to me. <laughs> but it always was just a door I could open and easily walk through. I was always welcome in that house. Um, so, yeah, and it was also really fun. And I have to recommend um, people who like, like to do some sort of creative act that like maybe some pair of like, 
some piece of jewelry you make, you make just for yourself rather than to sell at an art show or to put up an Etsy. Or if you're a painter, that there's some painting that you actually are going to burn when you finish it rather than making it in order to put in a show. And if you're a writer, to write things that aren't meant, um, that are the one night stands, right? That it's for your pleasure and just for fun and just for a minute. I'm not telling people to go have one night stands in their real life. They make those choices about their health and sexuality on their own, but for creation and for art, I, I think it's really important to just have those things that maybe are just for fun or just, you know, not meant, you're not working towards something maybe in it. You're just playing. Um, and so for me, I, I did end up, catching feelings as people young people would say um for my one night stands and i realized they were a part of this book um and i liked how lyric and weird and especially when i was a new mom um and not able to have a lot of time to write um that was really helpful for me to have a way to write that was lyric and leaping and strange that didn't have to make a lot of sense um and so that was really helpful as well um, and so I was going to read just one of them. They're all called Dear Thanatos. Um, so I ended up keeping quite a few of my one night stands over the years. I, like I said, it's all the same title. So Dear Thanatos, it wasn't a dream. I gave birth to a one-eyed angel. His placenta was a fig slick with honey, so I ate it. I nursed him with grapes crushed between my breasts. What can kill you is sacred, so my child was sacred, blonde and vengeful. His ribs said, enter me, and my shadow said, yes. He took the silver coins hidden in my mouth and laid me in the tall grass. The stars said, where am I? My dress said, rip. I saw no clouds, but I saw the wind who only wanted a daughter, and I had none to give. There was the black tongue sliding deeper into the earth. There was his one good eye open, silvered, my initials carved in the center. So little in me wanted to live. The darkness said, you die whether you risk anything or not. I emptied ashes from my pockets. I crawled to feel the stones cut my knees, God's foot on my throat. The dream said, follow me. The angel said, you're here. Thank you. That was Tracy Broomhall reading her poem, Dear Thanatos. I love, love, love this poem. I think this might be my favorite poem in the whole book. Oh, wow. No one's said that before. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, to choose, so many great poems to choose from, but this poem has just so many startling images in it. Uh, the one, you know, starting with the one-eyed angel and placenta was a fig slick with honey and silver coins, and black tongues sliding deeper into the earth. There's so much, you know, maternal imagery, and God, and death, and sex throughout the whole poem. It, it's as if the wild enters through these images, and it, they're startling. I know you said a little bit about these poems as a one-night stand, but there's some way that that darkness and the wildness really fully enters these poems. Um, maybe you could say something about that wild element. Um, I, I think part of it might just be I've, I've often been drawn to the archetypal. Um, I 
listened to like one of the things in my early 20s that just really woke me up um, was hearing Joseph Campbell's interviews with Bill Moyers. Yes. Um, and a Joseph Campbell quote opens um, one of my books is like the opening quote, um, the demon you can swallow gives you its power. And I think I've thought often, I like to tell people that the secret of me being a poet was that I was raised on the Bible and X-Men comics. So I, I was not raised in a house of books. Um, my parents weren't readers. Uh, my mom, I saw her read maybe three novels in her adult life. Uh, we had multiple editions of the Bible, an encyclopedia, and I was a huge X-Men nerd. And I loved comic book stores and comic uh -huh. book stores were everywhere when I was a kid. So I, I think with both the Bible and superheroes, you're dealing with a lot of, like a lot of my origin story as a writer is very archetypal. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like with a lot of, I, I learned a lot of like, rich language from superhero comics and a lot of like archetypal narratives from the Bible and um, a lot of rhythmic language from the Bible. And so I, I also want to be upfront about the fact too, like it's not like my parents reading me Keats for bedtime stories or something. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know who Elizabeth Bishop was till college. Like I didn't know um, uh -huh. that that wasn't, you know, so I did have, I knew lullabies and some fairy tales and um, but I think a lot of that childhood foundation in literature uses those archetypes. Yes. Um, and, and so that's very much where I think a lot of my imagination and my drive to write comes from is that, that very sort of mythic and archetype um, sense from childhood, from the, the stories that I learned first. Well, and that it, it really animates your poems because like this poem, for example, this poem has action in it. And, you know, some of the, there's so many interesting things that speak in this poem. His ribs said, enter me. And my shadow said, yes. Like that's just so surprising and arresting in those moments. The star said, where am I? My dress said, rip. So this very active conversation happening uh, between these very deep and archetypal elements in the poem. This poem is many, I think one of your signature things, especially in this collection, is that many of these poems begin or end or both with a very startling statement. So we, you open this poem, it wasn't a dream. I gave birth to a one-eyed angel. His placenta was a fig slick with honey, so I ate it. And we have that action and we have this just startling imagery. And then the last line of the poem, the dream said, follow me. The angel said, you're here. Another startling statement. Um, was that line, was like that, that last line, was that a revelation to the speaker in the poem? Or was that something that was already in your consciousness that you were coming to? So I often don't remember everything about how a poem comes to be, though I, I do know I'm often a magpie. And so as lines occur to me, I write them down. Often before I sit down to write, I flip back through the last few pages of my journal and I just sort of like start putting all of that stuff back into the, the fresh part of my mind. Though it was said that Ernest Hemingway in his, um, would write a first draft and then flip it over and not look at that draft while then writing the second draft with the idea that anything that was strong or good about that would end up showing up in the next draft. So, so part of that is, is enacting that, right? Like just reading through like all of the bits that had filtered out that when I'm scribbling down notes, 
that that's showing up when, um, when I'm writing that fuller draft. Mm. And also it's true that like, if I have a poem where something feels stuck or something feels not there, um, one of the best things to do is just don't look at that. Like stop revising that poem, flip that over, take what was best about it or the, the line you want to start with and enter the next thing mm. and start and put a whole new heat on it and try and recraft it with that whole, with that new energy. Mm. Um, and so, um, like, I don't know where a lot of the things came from, but I know for me, a lot of the ending is rhythmic and I know I've hit my ending based on the music. And sometimes I know the music I want to hit before I know the words. Like I know I want da, 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 right. Or da, 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 right. Whatever it is. I just, there's a music that I, I know I'm aiming towards a certain music. And if I just, sometimes the words I'm trying to get the syllable pattern, right. And then the words that fall in, I'm like, weird. I don't know what that means. Um, but that also is really rich, right? So I'm a person who, when I do a, a workshop revision, I always call it a tarot card reading because I don't think we're telling somebody how to live their life or that their poems are broken. We are there to discuss possibilities and imagine a future for that poem um, and have a conversation about that future and look at images and think about what they might be suggesting, right? right. And I, I write very much this, I do not know how to tarot read. <laughs> I do not have the gift. <laughs> so when, when I do it with friends, I'm like, okay, you know, just know that I don't have, I don't have this, I know how to look at images and like make up a story about them, but right. that's kind of how it feels to write too. I feel like I have images that come out and, you know, in a certain pattern and order. And then afterwards I'm like, okay, so what did that all mean? Um, and then later I, I sometimes try and understand what my poems were trying to say to me, but yeah. I do often feel like. I'm talking to, it's a conversation between my, my conscious mind, which I'm often trying to distract so that my subconscious can sort of rise to the surface and things come out. And I usually don't understand what I'm writing <laughs> when I'm writing it, but I try to revise more of those meanings or those, um, you made the statement of like, my love is crazy like that where I want to, yeah. but in an initial draft, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just lost. And I just, you know, it's just living. <laughs> just being lost. Doing your best. Um, and then later looking back and being like, okay, so I think these three things showed up and I, I wasn't aware I was using that. But yeah, there's this trend going on. And what do I think my poem is about? Where I have to analyze it the way anybody right. else would, because I don't know what's I don't know what's going on. Right. That's great. That's a, that's such a it's such an alive process. Well, and I think it's always about, um, it's about being alive anyway for me. Like it's, it's how to be a person, how to understand the world, how to understand myself. And that's what I'm doing when I write. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's often organic. It's often messy. The process changes as my life changes, as I change. So I've never, I still don't know how to write a poem, but I think that's why I still like it is it's not something I, I even can master. Um, and then it gives me more than I can give it everybody is, is rewarded and everybody feels like they're getting more out of it than they're putting in. I think good loves feel like that. Yeah. And I believe in, in these poems, you're actually giving that experience to the reader as well as, you know, as a reader following through those images and listening to the startling statements and seeing that more intimate reveal and how it resonates in me and my life uh, and then the next startling image, it, it's a very active, active process. So we were just delving into Dear Thanatos, 
And I thought we might uh, do another dive into Dear Eros, his uh, wonderful companion in this collection. Sure, yeah. So after uh, years of having one night stands with darkness, um, one of the final things I did, you know, when thinking about the book and working through the questions and issues I felt there uh, was to decide, at first I tried to write to people I loved, but it was much more helpful just to write to the idea of love um, and that life drive, that love drive. Um, and the voice that came out when I wrote to love ended up being far different and far more chatty than, um, than my letters to darkness. So there's a series of Dear Eros poems throughout the book um, that complement sort of the, the Dear Thanatos. Um, and so this is, this is one of them. Dear Eros, I asked my son which part of his body he loved the most. He said his skeleton. I always used to think I loved my feet, a quarter of my bones splayed into fans, the nerves so bright and easy to please. A friend's daughter showed me the bones she'd filed into an old card catalog. I handed each one back, the dull heat of rot traded for the glare white of a bare rib, fleshless cradle of hip, heft of femur on a mantle. She and I shared our love of lemons, and she taught me witch in her made-up language so I could call myself by the proper word, the invented one. I held myself against the hard belly of those vowels, that black glyph of a name. The pulse I once felt when my son turned inside me thrummed against my hand. Tonight, the splinter I let live in my thumb finally worked its way out of my flesh, the wound larger than the weapon. I asked my son which part of his life he loved most. He said crying, because it felt so good to stop when he was happy again. The daughter showed me the thin hair of roots whitening the soil in a jar. She has made the small wilderness and given it life. When my marriage was failing, I offered to take care of my friend's succulent. Last winter, everything was going gray. So when the plant began to bloom, I welcomed its dusty pollen until the kitchen smelled like carrion and bone dust. The house grew heavy with need. With an ache, I understood. The smell of death was simple to answer. I knew what those fetid yellow stars required. I opened the back door to invite the flies to their desire. Thank you. Well, listeners, let's take a moment to remind you that you are listening to the Hive Poetry Collection here on KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. You can find the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook, the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, or look for our website, hivepoetry.org. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Hive Poetry. And please download our broadcasts as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please subscribe. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and today we're talking with Tracy Brimhall, Welcome back. Thank you so much. Before the break, Tracy just read the poem, Dear Eros. And Tracy, that's just such a stunning and beautiful poem. And the, the structure of this poem is a little different than many in your collection. Uh, listeners, this poem has two about equally sized stanzas in it. And there's just so much beautiful language. I, I mean, 
ever since I went to the Joseph Campbell Library and held his books in my hands and read notes that he wrote in the margins of his books, I have given myself permission to write in books. And usually, you know, when I'm reading a poem, I'll underline or I'll circle a word. And then when I look at it, I see right away what stands out. But when I read your book, I almost underlined everything and circled everything. <laughs> so I have to really read the notes that I wrote to know what I was kind of going wow about. And in this poem, the language, the black glyph of a name, and the wound larger than the weapon. But I have to say the line that just really cracked me open in this poem was in the second stanza and what the sun said. And I love how it follows the repetition of the opening of the poem. I asked my son which part of his life he loved most. He said crying because it felt so good to stop when he was happy again. And I feel like that is such a true statement that yes. we really appreciate our happiness until our heart has been broken with sorrow, until we know loss we can't really love. And to have that truth come from this young boy is so, um, I don't know, just really broke me open. Yeah, the, the best line in the poem is one I just stole from my kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's getting to the age, too, where I have to be a little bit more careful of what he might share and what's share of, you know, when kids are really, really little, it's, it's really okay to, they're just saying kid things, and it's, it's not a big deal. But the older he gets and the more his personhood is established, um, the less I can take things he says for a poem. And I even have, like, a, a part of this book that I'm like, oh gosh, I wonder if that was okay, if that's going to be a thing he resents later. Um, yeah, I appreciated how you addressed that at the end of the book or in your acknowledgments of, you know, wish, hoping that you haven't caused him any hurt by what you've shared in the poems. And I just thought that was a really beautiful statement to include. Well, and always, right, it's the negotiation of writing about people that you love and possibly exposing them. Um, so I do try and make sure I'm the bad guy in most of my poems. <laughs> I'm like not trying to expose or hurt others or, you know, I can expose my own truths, but trying to be careful with the people I love, um, how they appear in poems. Um, but I mean, he's arriving at this age too, where it's it's gonna it's becoming harder to include things he says. But there's so much that's happening right now that I want to write about, and um, I think one of the ways I've done that too in the past is hiding in a myth or an archetype or in yeah. history or finding persona or other ways around um, the present, where in order to protect him or in order to be the the, the person, the mom I want to be, I have to be. Um, I don't want to say less honest, but I have to have strategies um, that allow me to work that out in a poem um, or have like write the poems that I, that don't go out or that don't get shared. Right. Um, because not everything we write has to become public or has to become shared. Um, but that's often, I, I like sharing and I like the way the intimacy that poetry provides of um, the way we communicate intimately in a poem. 
um, is often full of care and protection um, and kindness. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like I can tell when a writer loves me as a reader and when they don't. Yeah. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're here with Tracy Brimhall. I think there's also kind of going hand in hand something you said earlier about kind of making yourself complicit in the poem. And, and I believe your poems are so incredibly intimate because the speakers in your poem really take an unflinching look at, at, at what they're saying, both kind of the truth of what they're saying, but the, the emotion and the action, they're not all pretty. And, you know, even this poem, you don't fall into sentimentality. Like you could write that line, you know, take that line from your son and write something that's much more sentimental about it. But there's a way that in your poems, you bring in that sense of duende that Yorka talks about, the, the shadow, the principle of death, right in with the lightness and vice versa. So this poem it you know, includes the both. When the plant began to bloom, I welcomed its dusty pollen until the kitchen smelled like carrion and bone dust. Well, we don't expect that. I didn't expect it either. <laughs> right, the house grew heavy with need. With an ache, I understood. The smell of death was simple to answer. I knew what those fetid yellow stars required. I opened the black door to invite the flies to their desire. And right here we have the beauty, like the beauty of desire and love and openness with the black flies and with death and with loss. And it's really stunning. Um, and I, I think like all of those poets who sort of popularized a certain kind of sentimentality, a lot of it used nature imagery and metaphors but it's like they never saw nature. <laughs> um, nature brutal, right? And in the case of this plant, it's not a honeybee pollinator. It's a it uses flies to pollinate, and so that's just that's the that's what something stank. Um, and everything has a different way of like you know procreating, and some of it's gross. Um, it's not all like tender lovemaking in nature. I mean, geez. <laughs> um, I, I think yeah, if we just look at nature, we really couldn't be sentimental nature right. is not sentimental that's yeah. a really human quality um and, but, and yet like so much of like the nature poem i think sometimes can feel quite sentimental but i think that's because people might not be looking and i read um annie dillard's pilgrim at tinker creek um yeah. in my early 20s that too and i was like oh my gosh nature is mean yeah. <laughs> So we don't have to live in it. Yes. Yeah, we don't have any of that like survivally stuff or anything. You know, we got indoor plumbing and air conditioning and we're fine. So nature <laughs> just seems quite lovely until yeah. you're in the middle of a giant wildfire or, you know. Right. But I mean, even on the daily and the things insects do to each other or, you know, just how the world functions, I, I think we just forget to see um, yeah. both sides of things. Yeah, and then there's this richness and incredible aliveness when you look at them together. Yeah. Right. And then well, the, the hope is trustworthy. Like the, the speaker in these poems is entirely trustworthy because, because of that. And Wallace Stevens said, death is the mother of beauty. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's right. Like the silk flower isn't as beautiful as the one that's actively dying because it's been cut and put in a vase. Um, and that I think instinctively we kind of know that but maybe we don't want to acknowledge it that my son loves his skeleton. Like, yeah. Otherwise, this is just a saggy old meat tube, right? Yeah. The skeleton's <laughs> given us some pressure. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is, uh, yeah, it's that death stuff. It's the, that, that makes the rest of it okay. Well, we are uh, listening to Tracy Brimhall, speaking with Tracy Brimhall here on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And this seems, Tracy, like a good segue into your poem, A Wonder. Sure. And this is the poem, too, that um, had a line from my son that I was like, oh, gosh, this is, I can't let myself do more than this. This has to be like some sort of farewell also to borrowing from him because it felt, it felt like maybe we were already starting to get to the point where he was becoming a self that I couldn't steal from anymore. Um, this poem is called Oh Wonder, and initially I, I was just trying for a happier poem. I just wanted to write about all of these wonderful facts. I really love facts. Just as a human being, I think facts are a great way to be intimate with the world and to know it. Mm -hmm. And um, having a small child, right, they're often like, why this, why that? And they're learning cool like facts and sharing them with you. And um, so it's... The it of the poem also, I'll make sure and mention for readers just right now, the it means wonder. So it's titled a wonder, so it's easy as a reader to look back up and remember the it is wonder, but as you listen, the it um, references back to the wonder of the title. Oh wonder, it's the garden spider who eats her mistakes at the end of day so she can billow in the lung of night, dangling from an insecure branch or caught on the coral spur of a dove's foot and sleep her spinnerets trailing radials like ungathered hair. It's the million pound cumulus. It's the troposphere holding it, miraculous. It's a mammatus rolling her weight through dusk, waiting to unhook and shake free the hail. Sometimes it's so ordinary it escapes your notice. Pothos reaching for windows, ease of an avocado slipping its skin. A porcelain boy with lamp black eyes told me most mammals have the same average number of time. It is the mouse engine that hums too hot to last. It is the blue whale's slow electricity. Six pumps per minute is the way to live centuries. I think it's also the hummingbird I saw in a video, lifted off a cement floor by firefighters and fed sugar water until she was, again, a tempest. It wasn't when my mother brother lifted her while I tried to shout louder than her sobs, but it was her heart, a washable ink. It was her dark's genius, how it moaned slow enough to outlive her. It is the orca who pushes her dead calf a thousand miles before she drops it or it falls apart. And it is also when she plays with her pod the next day. It is the night my son tugs at his pajama collar and cries, the sad is so big, I can't get it all out. And I behold him, astonished, his sadness as clean and abundant as spring, his thunder heart a marvel I refuse to invade with empathy. And outside, clouds groan like gods, a garden spider consumes her home. It's knowing she can weave it tomorrow between citrus leaves and earth, it's her chamberless heart cleaving the length of her body. 
It is lifting my son into my lap to witness the birth of his grieving. Beautiful. That was Tracy Brimhall reading her poem, A Wonder. I love the movement in this poem. How we go from the title, Oh Wonder, to an ordinary garden spider. And then punctuated with such mystery and beautiful images, like billow in the lung of the night, coral spur of a dove's foot. And this repeats through the whole poem, like these ordinary moments, and then these extraordinary moments. Uh, it's just breathtaking, really. And I love how um, there are these surprising turns, like there's this graduating build of this incredible wonder that's building in the poem. And then there's a turn to the strange fact, a porcelain boy with lamp black eyes told me most mammals have the same average number of heartbeats in a lifetime. And then such interesting examples of that. And then there's that next turn to the mother and the stakes in the poem get very high at that point. Now we're in the human realm and in the realm of human wonder. And then back momentarily with a, about the mother, but it was her heart, a washable ink. It was her dark genius, how it moaned slow enough to outlive her. Uh, that's just so moving. Thanks. It was um, a much smaller moment when I brought it to my workshop, my, my workshop of people that I share poems with once a month. And um, they're really good at keeping me honest and asking the right questions all the time. And they were like, but the stakes here are so human and you turn away from it. And um, so that's what just made me go back and, and turn into the darkness a little bit more that there'd been a lot of, joy at the world and beholding it for what it is. Um, but then also I had to let this exist alongside it um, and look closer at, at the hard things that made me and my fear of passing on that hard stuff. Um, and, and thinking too about, you know, we're talking about poems and intimacy yes. and being a parent and wanting to rescue your child from sadness, but the oh. best thing I can do is teach him how to go through it. Um, and I love, there's this quote in Leslie Jameson's uh, book, The Empathy Exams, about how empathy is always poised between a gift and an invasion. And mm -hmm. how the, the most generous things I could do for him as a mother is not to try and take away his sadness, but just to hold on to him while he moved through it and not try and remove it or say everything was fine, but to let him get the big sadness out um, the best that he could. Um, and yeah, how difficult that is just to be by someone while they go through something difficult. So absolutely. And, you know, with our children, we, we just want to protect them from the pain. And it's uh, such an act of faith and courage and strength to allow them to have the pain of their life, to have the mistakes, to make their own mistakes, to, you know, be birthed into themselves. It's the only way they can do it. And yet as a parent, you, you would just so much rather take the pain on yourself and let them be spared from it. And, you know, my son is in his mid thirties now and I still feel the same way. I'm much more practiced, of course, <laughs> but that, that impact, that impetus to 
protect and spare is so strong. And, and yet when you refrain from doing that, and like the last line in this poem of the wonder, it is lifting my son into my lap to witness the birth of his grieving. And then he, you know, we see the birth of him as a full human being. Yeah, how difficult and painful and horrible birth is. <laughs> that miracles are horrible. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but, Make no mistake about that. <laughs> you really had to get that out, right? You just had to figure out how to, and I think that's part of the difficulty of so many things is it's the first time we've ever done something or gone through something and it feels like it will last forever or we don't know how. But one of the best, I also recognize early on, I've always, anger has been the emotion I understand the least that I find the most difficult. Sadness I'll do all day long, it's fine. Um, but that I realized the best thing I could do for my child is not constantly be patient or always, but to let him see that like, I'm getting frustrated or like mommy's heart is angry. Mommy needs to go count to 10 in her room. <laughs> like <laughs> role modeling, a kind of anger I think is acceptable. You know, there is this like, what is being good at anger, right? I don't right. know. Um, but trying to model with ways to get past it because he's going to be angry. He That's feels right. anger. And what does he need to do? Let's see what we would like talk about what we each did good with our anger afterwards and what we needed to work on. It's like, yes. you, know, you did and you know, good job, not, you know, hitting anything or throwing anything, but you said this thing and we need to remember, even if you're angry, you shouldn't, you know, call the other person a name, but you can still <laughs> be angry or you can, you know, say that you're angry or find other ways to express it without yeah. mean to a person or That's right. you just like talk about our anger and he'd be like, well, and you yelled and he's like, so you don't get coffee tomorrow. <laughs> he said it wasn't fair if there was a consequence for him and not a consequence for me and so we came up with the consequence of mommy doesn't get coffee she well, that's a pretty big one <laughs> it is it's like but it helps mommy not yell it helps mommy and her feelings her heart likes coffee <laughs> well, i think there's a way that this poem you know kind of what we're getting at is this poem like so many of the poems in this collection it's addressing the deepest aspects of our human nature, our, um, this rich emotional life, um, the beauty, the awe, the terror, the horror, and, and, and the, the spirituality that's embodied in all of that without being heavy handed. You're never telling the reader what to think, but you're giving us so many experiences through these moments in the poem that as a reader, I have to grapple with it. You, you know, the, like this poem in particular, you know, reminds me of moments of wonder and awe and horror. And it reminds me of moments raising my own son or uh, with my grown stepchildren and my grandchildren, these, these moments that are so vivid. And then all of that grappling within myself and uh, listeners, go to your local bookstore and buy this book because you're going to get so much from it, um, both in the beauty and in the mirror that it holds up to us. Uh, these are just such strong poems. Well, I know we have another poem on our list. And if you're just tuning in, listeners, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're talking with poet Tracy Brimhall. So we have another poem on our list that I think is a perfect poem for our times right now, a Contender. I'm wondering if you'd like to read that now. 
Yes, and I'll say ahead of time um, that I am not a horse person. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the hidden secrets of poetry is that you're writing a poem, and for me at least, a good amount of my time is spent researching all kinds of things I really didn't know very much about, but now I need to know because this image has entered my poem and I have to learn about it. it it's fabulous. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much of what I know about the world is because I write poems. And I tell students all the time that, you know, I give them flowers and they have to wander the room looking for the secret meaning. Like people have a flower name or a, a secret meaning and they have to go find their secret meaning. And I said, you have to know what flower you're putting in a love poem because you think you're giving something, somebody something nice, but it's a, 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 it's a flower that's asking for forgiveness. And I was like, what did you do? <laughs> or it's a flower <laughs> that represents death. And like, then you're wishing that person dead. Uh, so you have to know the things in your poem. And, and yes, yeah, so like the research. And I forget how this fact about Secretariat came into my life. But Secretariat is a very famous racehorse for people who know horses, not me, um, who won the Triple Crown. And um, so uh, people do know what happens to horses who don't go on to Triple Crowns. Um, you know, their bodies are used for other things. They are recycled. Um, but if you win the Triple Crown, you get to be buried whole. And at the necropsy of uh, Secretariat, um, the quote in the poem is an actual quote from the person doing Secretariat's necropsy when they discovered that Secretariat had this genetically enlarged heart, um, and that was the secret of success. Um, wasn't the better training or the better jockeys, just a really big heart was how Secretariat won all the races. Um, so that's, that's useful to know while listening to the poem. And this is my last poem um, for the show, and it's Contender. It's all right to overdress for the riot. Your rage is stunning. It's all right to pursue the wrong pleasures and the right suffering. Here's my permission, take it. It's all right to replace a siren with a bell. Your emergency should make its music. It's all right that the meter reader broke your sunflower in half. You knew better than to plant it where you did. Sometimes it's all right if you call your waiter honey when you order sweet tea. It's all right if you fall out of love with being alive, but rise again tomorrow with French pop songs and fresh croissants. Wear all your gold to church and try, really try, to believe anything but a stethoscope can hear your heart's urgency. It's all right that your mother died. So will your father and your son, but hopefully not before you. It's all right to lie naked in the rain and refuse to go inside, even when the moon tries to make your cold thighs shine. It's okay to lick the ice cream cake from your fingers. Do it, now, in front of everyone. And if what falls on the children lining up their cars for the soapbox derby is not snow, but ash, that's all right. Celebrate the mutable body. And if you write notes to friends and senators in primary colors, that's fine. It's even okay to begrudge the stubborn pears in the wooden bowl. You're right, you know. They're waiting to yellow until you turn away. It's all right that in the economy of forgiveness, you keep coming up one daffodil short. It's all right if you ask your heart to grow the size of secretariats, not because you want to outrun other horses or because your legs are classic, but because you, too, want to be buried whole after someone examines the insensible engine you left behind. I am of the beloved's name no longer metronoming the valves and places the slick fist in a stainless tray for weighing and shouts, sweet Jesus.
before describing its ungodly heft with superlatives, your heart, the most tireless, wildest, wiliest, thirstiest heat on record. Beautiful, beautiful. Just such a stunning poem and such great permission to hear in the here and now. Thank you so much for joining us, Tracy. It's been a delight to share this hour with you and to hear all of your poems and your ideas and stories. I hope you'll join us again on the High Poetry Collective again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Be for the honey, be, be for the, yeah. be for the honey, be, be for the. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I've been your host, Julie Murphy, and we hope to see you next week. Good night and take care.